Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. So, we're taking a short break from the narrative to listen to a different angle on a very famous event. It happens that the famous event occurred during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, so of course it ties in nicely with our current focus. Seasoned World War I enthusiasts will likely know at least the outlines of the story of Sergeant Alvin York, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, American soldiers to emerge from the Great War, from the popular website history.com. Quote, The events of October 8, 1918, took place as part of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, what was to be the final Allied push against German forces on the Western Front during World War I. York and his battalion were given the task of seizing German-held positions across a valley. After encountering difficulties, a small group of soldiers, numbering some 17 men, were fired upon by a German machine gun nest at the top of a nearby hill. The gunners cut down nine men, including a superior officer, leaving York in charge of the squad. Several other American soldiers followed York's lead and began firing. As they drew closer to the machine gun nest, the German commander, thinking he had underestimated the size of the enemy squadron, surrendered his garrison of some 90 men. On the way back to the Allied lines, York and his squad took more prisoners, for a total of 132. Though Alvin York consistently played down his accomplishments of that day, he was given credit for killing more than 20 German soldiers. Promoted to the rank of sergeant, he remained on the front lines until November 1st, 10 days before the armistice. In April 1919, York was awarded the highest American military decoration, the Medal of Honor, unquote. In this episode, we're going to have James Gregory talk to us about his upcoming article, The Other Sixteen, which focuses on the other men who were with Alvin York that fateful day in the hills near Châtel-Cherie, near the northern tip of the Argonne Forest. James Gregory is pursuing a PhD at the University of Oklahoma. He is a noted author and historian of the Marine Corps and Second Division in World War I. He deals primarily with soldier biographies and cultural impacts of the war, and I thoroughly look forward to listening to the results of his research. Please, join me for the interview right after the short pause. All right. All right, James, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, so really uh, interesting story here with uh, regarding the, the Alvin York story. Um, but I want to take it back to the beginning, if I may. And sure. do you have a, a connection with World War I, like a personal family connection or anything? I personally do not. But what got me interested was as an undergrad, I started doing some research and one of my professors mentioned to me one day that his grandfather had been a Marine in World War mm-hmm. One, and he had all these letters and photographs stored away. And so he let me come in and look at the letters and I, I took them, I copied them down and it, it turned into my first book, uh, the story of one Marine in which wow. I used his letters and uh, pieced the story together and figured out where he was throughout the war. And when that book came out at a book signing event, the um, news reporter who was there stopped me afterwards and said his grandfather was a Marine and he also had letters. So that became my second book, uh, A Poet at War. And so I just found myself falling into these situations. And so I essentially fell down the rabbit hole of World War One research. And uh, I've just been stuck in it since and I've really enjoyed it. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. It's, it's, um, funny. I, I, um, don't have a personal connection either. So, but I just I find the subject fascinating. Yeah. Like, endlessly so. so awesome. Um, so I, so I see like you, you know, two books on world row one, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get links to those up as well. Um, now the story of the other 16 as, as, uh, we're calling them, mm-hmm. 
what got you interested in this story and like what, what connected you with them? Well, so in uh, doing the research for my uh, two books with the Marine Corps, I found myself, you know, on Facebook and on these groups trying to find research. And I got introduced to a gentleman named Stephen Gerard. And now Stephen is by far one of the best historians for the second division and for the Marine Corps in World War One. Um, mm-hmm. Besides the fact that he is a retired you know, combat veteran, uh, he also was a unit historical officer, uh, and he works with uh, Marine Corps History Division and uh, is the one you want to talk to if you want to talk Marines, World War One, Second Division. Okay. So Stephen actually called me one day and he said, hey, I got a I got a new project for you. And I said, OK, what is it? And he said, well, I found this this video on YouTube of these uh, descendants of some guys that were said there with Alvin York. And, you know, they've got a really interesting story. I said, OK, cool. Let's let's look into it. So uh, Stephen managed to get a hold of them and get me in contact with them, uh, with the descendants, some of them. And it turned out, you know, they had all gotten together in 2008 and tried to bring the story to light. And it really didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they'd been pretty disappointed by that, but, you know, it's taken a while, but the, the whole process was talking to them, um, getting involved, learning the story, you know, reading as much as I can. So what got me interested was Steven's phone call and then just diving into the story. And as I've learned the intricacies about the, their argument, it's been really fascinating. Cool. Excellent. Um, so, so you, you connected with Steven Gerard, um, and, and he presents this video, he presents this project to you. Where, where do you go from here? I ask, mm-hmm. I ask as like someone like, like, like this would be such a, like a monumental task. Like I, I, me personally, like I would be like, where do I even begin? Right. Well, I, it's nice, nice to mention it's been, going on three years now that I've been working on this project. So, um, starting off, you know, it was monumental and, you know, how do you really get this other perspective, especially since it's not one that's very uh, easy to get access to. All right. Mm -hmm. So I started, um, obviously I watched the video, um, talking to the descendants, emailing them, uh, reading anything I could possibly get my hands on, you know, uh, I, almost every single book, on Alvin York, I possess now. I read the 82nd Division History from 1919. Um, okay. You know, reading anything, and it's those always show, you know, they'll mention them, but they never go into the detail. And so it's really working with the descendants that it turns out, you know, these families have been trying to get recognition for the last 100 years. And for the last 100 years, they've, they've really held on to things, documents, letters, um, news articles, things that never show up in the historiography when they talk about York. So going from there, you just have to start, lay it out from the beginning. And this story, uh, it's not, you know, just after the war that brings up and it's gone. It, it stretches, you know, 50 years almost, um, of them trying to get recognition. So then I have 50 years, finally, you know, I said it's been three years, two of those years was just trying to gain the trust of the families and trying to get this story told uh, the best way possible. Cause in the past, the families have been approached by others who just ended up spurning them in the end and not focusing on the family, rather focusing on Alvin York. So mm-hmm. once you gain their trust, they open up more documents, they share more and find out that, you know, there's a much bigger picture here than just a simple disagreement. All right. Um, so the, the article, um, the other 16, um, it is the, uh, it's going to be released in the U S army's, um, infantry journal now called infantry magazine, um, which links will be provided, uh, in the episode notes and on all, uh, social media postings. Um, now could you, this is the first chapter, correct? Yeah. Essentially the article is a kind of meat and potatoes version of the first chapter where what I I assume actually might end up being the second chapter, but it's the battle. It's the, it's the events 
um, around the battle, not from mm-hmm. Alvin York's perspective, but from the perspective of the other 16 men. Um, and it is, you know, you got to mention uh, six of them mm-hmm. were killed in the event. Yeah. So um, there were 10 survivors out of those 16. So as many uh, perspectives as I could gather, I put together to make this article and their mm-hmm. side of the battle. Mm-hmm. And can you, can you give us a, a short, just retelling of, of the battle from this, from this new perspective? Like just, just the main event. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I just want to start this overall. I think it's important um, that these other men have their names. So I'm just going to read off their names Yes, please. Um, Bernard Early, Otis Merrithew, Murray Savage, Percy Beardsley, Patrick Donahue, Marion Demowski, Thomas Johnson, Joseph Kornacki, Mario Musi, Michael Cecina, Theodore Sock, Carl Swanson, Nedwell Waring, Ralph Weiler, George Wills, and William Wine. So these 16 other men were there this day. So on October 8th, 1918, the Men of the 328th U.S. Infantry Regiment are pushing through the forest and through the Argonne Forest. And as they push forward, they are inundated by machine gun fire on their flanks. And the uh, Sergeant Parsons, who is in charge, orders Bernard Early, who is a corporal. He is an acting sergeant, but he's a corporal, Mm -hmm. to lead uh, some men around the left rear flank and to get behind the machine guns and try to silence them. Now, it's essentially a suicide mission. But Mm -hmm. Early takes them in. Um, The patrols, it was Murray Savage, was a squad with Marion Damowski, Ralph Weiler, um, William Cutting, Otis Merrithew. Um, And I think I'll go into that real fast as we get into it, just so it's not confusing. Sure. Um, So in some of the documents and a lot of the books and historiography, you'll find the name William Cutting. And William Cutting is actually, uh, his real name is Otis Merrithew. Otis Merrithew, when he wanted to join the army, his mom didn't want him to. So mm-hmm. on his way to sign up, he took the name William Cutting from a local uh, sign for a business. And so he enlisted as uh, William Cutting. And during the war, he continued. So after the war, there's a lot of confusion um, because William Cutting doesn't exist. And right, so right. throughout some of the books, they refer to him as William Cutting. So I bring it up at the beginning, but moving forward, I just want to refer to him by his real name as Otis Merrithew. Uh, I, I can't, uh, if I can just stop yeah. you real quick, like this whole story, like I, I just couldn't believe someone like you, you couldn't, you couldn't pull that off today. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But he, he pulled it off and he said he just didn't want his mother to see his name pop up in the newspaper of yeah. having signed it. Um, but, you know, he got away and at a different time you could, you know, lie about a few things just to get into the army. So that's how he got in. Um, and when he came home, he went to work and no one knew Otis Merrithew was involved in this until uh, 10 years later when he was finally tracked down by the army. Um, wow. But... Otis Merrithew uh, leads his squad. He's got Fred Waring, Theodore Sock, Michael Cecina, Donahue, George Wills, and Private William Wine. Um, So Alvin York, and this is, it's a small piece, but in writing this, it's always fascinating to see like bits and pieces that are left out. Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone brings up uh, Corporal York, and technically Alvin York was a private first class. Uh, He is never, he never held the rank of corporal. He was an acting corporal that day, but he was a private first class. Um, Alvin York was in command of a show show automatic rifle squad. So he had Carl Swanson, Mara Muti, Percy Beardsley, Joseph uh, Kornacki, and Thomas Johnson. So York had a whole group of men uh, under him and a show show automatic rifle. And that's important for the uh, engagement. But uh, Bernard Early is in charge. So he takes them in through this valley. There's fog. They, they advance um, across it. They get to a small stream. Um, and uh, judging by some of the stories, you know, uh, one or two Germans dart from the water while they were getting, they were down at the stream getting water. And they were spooked and ran off. And the men fired at them. And they tripped and ran and got away. 
So I really split up the groups. Um, he moved forward, and the men end up stumbling upon a German encampment. And these Germans had just gone all night, hiked their positions, and they were tired. It's morning, and they were essentially all like making breakfast. Um, yep. So they converge around these Germans, and they open fire. And approximately, you know, d- depending on some of their statements, around 15 Germans fell. And but when they saw that it was they were unarmed early, stopped the firing and the men moved in and they surrounded the Germans. So automatically you have 17 men just surrounded a a group, you know, about 80 Germans. And so early and everyone moves in early orders York and his automatic rifle squad to stay further to the right to cover them. And that makes sense. You know, he's got the automatic rifle. That's who I want covering me. Um, Correct. Yep. So they line up the Germans and they start taking their weapons from them. And on top of the hill is a um, unit, a German unit that has, uh, they're an infantry regiment. They're very small, but they're on top of this hill and they turn around and they see that the Germans have been captured. And again, this is also a big one to note. They had a single machine gun. Um, The story tends to fall where York silenced 35 machine guns. However, uh, there was only one machine gun um, firing down on them. And even York admits that later on. But this machine gun opens fire. um, But before they they do a signal and the Germans all fall flat, machine gun opens fire and immediately cuts down several of the men. So six of them, as I said, were killed immediately. And that's... Mm -hmm. Uh, Savage, Damowski, Swanson, Waring, Weiler, and Wine, those six are immediately killed. Okay. Um, Early takes several bullets um, to the left side of his body, and some of the reports, um, there was a hole in his back so large you could see his kidneys. Um, Oh, God. But he doesn't lose consciousness. He falls to the ground. Private Musi was wounded through his shoulder. Um, And Early, and again, several of their reports, looks over to Marathew and Marathew would be second in charge. And he tells Marathew to take over. So mm-hmm. Marathew starts firing back. And again, the men aren't just hiding. They're all firing back, but sure. pretty soon Marathew takes a bullet, um, to the left arm. However, uh, he pulls out his pistol and continues firing. He doesn't just fall out of the fight. He's in the fight. He didn't lose consciousness. He never relinquished command. He was still in control, and he's still firing back. And that, I think, is an important piece of this because all of the stories always claim that York, being the last non-commissioned officer still standing, took control. Um, However, Marathi is perfectly capable of still being in charge. Uh, Mm -hmm. He just has a wound in the left arm. So on the right, you've got... Private Beardsley, and now Beardsley was in York's group, and Beardsley had the show show, automatic rifle. He ducks yep. and takes trouble, um, cover behind an oak tree, and he returns fire, right? He's got an automatic rifle. He's not going to just sit around. He returns, and he accounts for several dead Germans. York. Yeah, now my— Say what? My—, my Oh, sorry. Uh, my, my understanding is the, the show shot uh, French automatic rifle while it was— uh, very much prone to jamming. Um, I think I read a, an account of where they said it was uh, another uh, doughboy said it was it was basically like a garden hose when it did work. Like you could really spray an area mm-hmm. and put down some some pretty heavy fire. So that would so yeah, and so that's that's definitely what you want if you're trying to fight back, right? And so right. he sets up and he starts returning fire, and beside him is York, and he sees York take cover. And a clump of bushes. And remember, uh, York and his group are farther right than the rest of the men. So mm-hmm. they are automatically have a better vantage point um, against the enemy. And mm-hmm. so York starts returning fire. Um, on top of this, though, and I think it's also very important to bring up. So you have um, Marathew returning fire. You have Beardsley yep. with a show show, show shot taking um, a returning fire. You have York. Returning fire, you have Private Kornacki. Um, he crawls to the side, and he starts firing back. Uh, Privates Wills and Donahue, 
they try to return fire, but they move into cover around the captured Germans and, you know, start firing back. Donahue mm-hmm. during the fight is then wounded in the shoulder. Um, okay. Private Sock and Cecina watch the Germans, right? They, you've got 80 Germans on the ground. There's 17 men. So those two right. really take this into account and they watch the Germans. So again, it's a, a point that all but two, so eight, there are eight Americans returning fire on the Germans on top of the hill, not just one. So yep. the eight men continue um, fighting. Cecina, he also is crawled over. Um, when he starts firing, he f- picks out the lieutenant in charge and keeps his rifle on him just in case something happens. So mm-hmm. now you have these Americans taking cover, returning fire. During this fire fight, right, you have York. He's on the farthest right. He's in the best vantage point. He starts um, moving, gets into a better firing position, and shoots more of the Germans. But you have to remember, this isn't just Americans shooting at Germans. There's 80 Germans laying on the field in between the two, right? So you have this machine gun on top of the hill firing down, um, undoubtedly wounding some of his own men in the process. So yeah, I was going to ask any, any Germans hitting like in the crossfire. Yeah, and see, and that's not brought up much, but it is mentioned that, you know, they're seeing that their men are all getting hit. This is a ridiculous position to be in. So mm-hmm. you've got all these men firing, killing the Germans on the hill. The Germans themselves are wounding their own men. Um, no. Beardsley fires all of his ammunition for the show shot. Uh, until he runs yep. out, and then he pulls out his pistol and keeps firing. So they're in this fight. Um, and several mm-hmm. of them say, you know, it goes on 15, 20 minutes or so. Um, so you see all these men are exposed in the open. So the uh, lieutenant, Lieutenant Vollmer, calls for the machine gun to cease fire. Now, Vollmer was in the group that was originally captured. So they captured the lieutenant in charge. Okay. So on that, um, with Early being in charge, right, the credit could go to Early capturing Lieutenant Vollmer. But he calls them off and tells them, stop firing, surrender. So they, you know, they kind of think that this can't be all the Americans. There has to be a bigger force nearby. So the Germans surrender and they bring them down to the to the big group, right? And they stand them up and they line them up. And Mm -hmm. this part's interesting. Um, Several of the authors will always talk about, in the movie, talks about this turkey shoot where um, a bunch of Germans come out with their bayonets and they charge York. And York shoots them one at a time back to front um, and then shoots them all, right? That's, yep, that's that's been my understanding with with the story as as I grew up hearing it. So, mm-hmm. well, you have all this now. Interestingly, I did find some accounts later on from York himself who said that never really happened. Um, oh, okay, but none of the other men say that happened. Now, if you read the German account, and the Germans did publish an account of what happened, they got several of these men that were captured and had them write down their statements. So if you read the German account, Lieutenant uh, Toma, he was Max Toma. He was um, moving around. He heard the firing. He says, you know, he hears the fire. He takes his men. They have their bayonets and they they're rushing to this fight. They hear. Right. And the fire fight dies down and they burst through the woods, bayonets out and see everyone surrendered. And they're very quickly, you know, surrounded because there's several Americans there and then they're captured and brought in. Now, if you read, you know, like Douglas Mastriano's book on York, he claims that there was like a conversation between Volmer and Tama about surrendering, which doesn't really make sense in a situation. If you're rushing through a firefight, no one's going to stop and have a conversation um, Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. surrendering. So they, you know, they burst out. So there is a bayonet charge. But there's none of this firing, you know, um, shooting them one at a time back to front. They all surrendered and they were all added to the group as well. So now the firefight's over. And remember, Matthew's still up. He's still technically the one in charge. 
he's not out. Early's down. He's very much wounded, but he's really the only one who's wounded to a point he can't get up. Okay. So Matthew, and if you read his account and several others, he is the one who says, okay, let's line them up. And they line up the, the rest of them, and he orders York to take Lieutenant Vollmer and march him at the front and march him out of the woods. So okay. York you know, puts his gun behind his pistol to the back of Lieutenant Vollmer, and they march back to their lines. And on the way, they you know, stumble upon a few other German groups who are then forced to surrender because Lieutenant Vollmer makes them. And so huh. this group of uh, 10 men now – with Early being carried um, by German prisoners and some of the other men move out of the woods, and it's not very far. This isn't like they walked a mile. They walk, you know, around 100 yards or so, and they come out of the woods, and they run into the rest of Company G, who they are part of. So when they exit the woods, and this is also a a big one for the article, is there's there's a few accounts of some of the other men from Company G, Um, when they saw this happen and uh, one of them, he mentioned that he saw, you know, York walks out up front with the German and here comes all these Germans lined up and all the other men are side by side. And he says, Otis Merrithew is bleeding from his left arm, but he's still walking around yelling. He says yelling like mad, Um, (laughs) you know, still yelling at the guys, moving them forward. Um, So on that, it would still show that, you know, perhaps, Merrithew is still in charge, but they come across their guys of Company G, and the the men say, "Oh, okay, this is interesting." They see that Early's wounded, right? Um, he's really very much wounded. You've got Merrithew bleeding, and when he comes up, um, Sergeant uh, Parsons sees Merrithew and forces him to come over to the first aid station to get a bandage up. So okay. Matthew goes into the first aid station, gets his arm bandaged up. And while he's in there, Lieutenant Joseph Woods, um, he sees this and he calls, you know, who's in charge or who's the highest ranking officer. And so Matthew's over in the first aid station Early's on a stretcher. So he puts York in charge to take these guys back. Okay. So when Matthew comes out of the first aid station, he sees that York's been put in charge and, they, they give some more men to help them take them back. And so Matthew accompanies them until they get to this road. And when they get to this road, they load up Matthew and Early into ambulances and take mm-hmm. them off, right? So now you've got York being the only non-commissioned officer walking them back and turns them in. And he gets the credit for capturing 132 Germans. Because he's the one in charge at the moment. But as we discussed, and especially reading through the article, at the beginning when they captured the 80-something Germans, uh, Bernard Early was the one in charge. And then on the way out, Merrithew's still standing and the one in charge. And so York just happens to be the last man standing when they turn him in. Right. This is this, I, this story is kind of similar if um, when I – um, I got to interview um, Andy Roberts Shaw um, in in an episode, and, and uh, we were discussing the psalm. Um, and it's just fascinating. He he told a story that was very similar, where where a British uh, lieutenant, um, before I make that error again, a uh, uh, British lieutenant like captured a group of Germans, and he was he was then very like in a very undignified manner. It's a long story, but he, he was punched out by a chaplain um, who, who then took the German prisoners and, and got the medal for it. And uh, the court lieutenant like never, never got, never got any sort of credit. So I could, you know, like, it seems like, yeah, it's, it's you know, kind of like the, not, not to take away from any of the events of the day, but like, right. yeah. And it's, it's, it's big to understand the context. Cause this is not uncommon, right? There's a, there's several other cases where, um, I can't recall the name, but there was a, a YMCA uh, gentleman who just happened. He was looking for a, a building for the YMCA to establish themselves, and he walked in on a German commander, and they surrendered to him. So then he just takes in all of these Germans by himself, YMCA, you know, not out there armed. And there's several other cases of 
people getting the Medal of Honor for doing the same thing, you know, capturing a large group of people by themselves. Uh, it's not yeah. an uncommon sight, especially this late in the war. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's normal right, to see large groups of Germans surrendering to smaller groups of Americans. Wow. So how does how does the story like I think like this story is is fascinating. It, it doesn't seem to take away from York's actions other than, you know, like there was no big turkey shoot right. uh, at the film. But yet like so there's there's a story here of like uh, uh, the way I read it. It's you've got a, you know, a modern infantry squad in action, you know, like conducting like. You know, pretty pretty complex warfare here. You know, with the machine gun team and maneuvering and trying to outflank the enemy, and in a pretty rough situation with POWs stuck in the middle. And and um, so, how does this story go from from one of like, you know, an infantry squad in action to you know, Sergeant York fighting the Germans single handedly? Uh-huh. Can we can we just simply and easily blame Hollywood for this, or is well, that way more? See- and I, I want to make it clear that the other 16 were not out to say York uh, deserves no credit. And I'm not out mm-hmm. to say York deserves no credit. Right. I'm I'm didn't start this project to be York bashing and say uh, York didn't do a thing. Right. Um, the, sure. the main part, the other 16, when they were still alive, they they always argued that it's it should be a shared glory that they Sharing the glory does not diminish the glory. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very adamant on that. I'm not trying to, you know, make a whole case that York absolutely doesn't deserve anything. I'm just saying it is a, a group effort, right? So what happens, and some people would love to say it's Hollywood's fault, but in okay. my research, um, it goes even further back. I mean – uh, if you read the article, when reading the article, you'll see that this didn't start with just York. Um, actually, uh, several of the other men were given credit for their role um, in the event. Um, several of them got the got silver stars, and I apologize, I'm, I have it written down. Um, so. Piercy uh, Beardsley, Joseph Kornacki, uh, Kornacki, George Wills, and Pre- uh, Patrick Donahue, uh, they yep. were all officially cited for gallantry in action in General Orders Number 1, Headquarters, 164th Brigade, 82nd Division, on May 4th, 1919. And yes, yep. they, uh, you know, that awards them all a silver star, a silver citation for um, a silver star, right? So they, they were given recognition. And if you read some of them, like Piercy Beardsley says, you know, during the attack on Hill 180 west of Chateau Cherie, uh, Mechanic Beardsley with the detachment from his company surprised and captured a number of Germans who were delivering flanking fire on the attacking line. And if you read the citations for the others, it says, you know, this soldier, when in his company was held up by the enemy flanking fire with several others, crawled to the flank and killed or captured the enemy who were delivering the flanking fire. Um, then later, Michael Sassina was commended for gallantry in action from the same event in General Orders Number Eleven, uh, okay. and that's on October eighth. Uh, um, sorry, that's his role, but it's um, General Orders Number Eleven, Headquarters, three hundred twenty-eighth U.S. Infantry Regiment. So, right there, you have several men who were automatically within a year, or not even a year, just a few months, given. Um, some credit for their role, right? So this automatically isn't single-handedly. And if you read the 82nd Division history from 1919, it mentions the fact that there was these other men that went in. But um, what ends up happening is George Petullo hears about this story, and it's it's important to m- uh, mention, um, and it's not in the article, so I won't go into it. You know, I don't want to spoil too much from the later project. Sure, sure. But York actually travels France with one of the chaplains from the 82nd division and tells the story. And he does that for like six weeks. And then George Petullo hears about it. He, he's a writer for the Saturday evening post. And okay. he writes an article called the second elder gives battle. And in this, he writes all about York's um, beginnings. Uh, he went from a hellraiser to believing in God. And then 
how he went from a conscientious objector to a warrior. And he just tells up this whole story. And everyone in America reads this. Um, Back in France, the Medal of Honor Commission that went out um, to establish the story from York. Um, And this is a big one I like to point out. They only took Alvin York to the battleground. Um, They only took him, even though everybody else, except for Early, Early had been evacuated back to the States. Every single other member of that group was in France. So they only took York back out to the battlefield and only took his story. And then, you know, they went through to a few of the men and asked for um, affidavits. Now, these affidavits, they don't exist anymore. You can only find them in the biography of Alvin York. But the some of them are identical, which doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're trying to get personal perspectives to for them to be 100 percent identical. So they get these affidavits to go forward and. You know, that's the end of that. York comes home. Everyone's um, parading him around as a huge hero. Um, And then you get 1928. The book comes out about him. Um, The second elder gives battles already been out there. And, you know, a lot of historians like to say, you know, the army in York never actually claimed he did it single handedly. Um, However, The media and the newspapers did start this up. They did start up this whole uh, single-handed story, right? But the army never bothered to correct it. And in my book, I go through several instances where York had the opportunity to correct it, and he didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in 1929, the U.S. Army War College held an event in which they were going to talk about York. And I managed somehow to get my hands on an original program from that event. And so it's an official U S army war college printed document. And the article in the program about York is written. Um, I believe it's by written by a Colonel, but I could be wrong to look at the source again, Mm -hmm. but it's official. And he himself states that York practically unassisted killed, you know, or captured 132 took out 25 machine guns. So there are, cases of the army uh, propagating this single-handed myth and York not taking the opportunity to correct it. And then, of course, in 1941, you have the movie. And the movie essentially just cements the single-handed aspect um, of this, you know, the myth of Alvin York. But it's, and I, I'm excited for the, the later on, because in the bigger project, um, I have all these evidence, all this evidence and letters and documents to show that, you know, Warner Brothers and all these people knew about the other 16. They knew about their stories. They were in, mm-hmm. you know, they were discussing it. They had letters going back and forth about this and they chose to ignore it. And the army chose to ignore the claims. And so, it, you know, it got to a point where the other 16, you know, rightfully so, they're frustrated and they're speaking out. And so in that 1929 War College event, um, Bernard Early was actually awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for leading the men into the uh, valley that day. Um, So he was finally awarded, but the the way they phrased his citation um, essentially said he led them into the valley and then he inspired York to do his great deed. Um, so there's not, you know, there's actually a, a much broader and much uh, deeper discussion that I'm hoping to have. And obviously this article is just the beginning of it. Um, but it back to your, your, your real question, it, yep. the media and the army and then Sergeant York, the movie in 1941 just cemented this myth of a single handed capture um, and completely kicked out the other 16 uh from the narrative okay yeah and i i think that that kind of answers why what i was going to have my next question was was why has the story Uh remained this way ever since then but yeah now i see it like you know it's it's kind of at that like probably by the time sergeant york the film came out like you know the the 
the the myth is set. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's still it's still coming up. I mean, Douglas Mastriano wrote his biography of Alvin York in 2014, um, and essentially it's, it's almost like a 21st century George Petullo. He focuses on this religious centric idea of York, um, and mm-hmm. he does slightly mention the other 16, and he had some contact with the with the descendants, but he chose not to go into that, even though he cites several articles that the other 16 from the other 16, like their perspectives, he doesn't go into it. And then in 2018, Michael Kelly put his book out um, discussing the battleground. He does his final chapter is actually called the other 16, um, but he only includes 14 of them. Um, And he has like the biography information that, used to be on this website called the the other 16 website. It's not up anymore, but he includes that, but that's it. No discussion on like their actual roles or what happened after the war. So the myth is even as of last year, still coming up in this York centric, um, religious centric idea of him. And they always fall in that. So it's, it's still there and it just remains that way because they always, fall back on Alvin York's side of the story, which, you know, personally I think is ridiculous to say there were 17 men, but we're only going to trust the story of one. And then that's going to be it. We're not going to trust what any of the other 10 survivors have to say about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, this is, um, this is like just a fascinating story and it's definitely like opens up a whole other viewpoint that I, I, I wasn't aware of. I'm sure people who read the article uh, aren't, uh, you know, may, may not be fully aware of. Um, it's just, it, it adds, adds a lot more to the story, which, you know, make just further cements like, yeah, I'll, I'll be reading world war one, like forever. <laughs> just stories like this. I mean, this is, this is amazing. Like just, just, everything that's gone into, you know, the, the, the myth of Sergeant York here. Um, so what, James, what, um, what do you hope to accomplish with, with this article once, once it, once it's released? Well, since it is, um, just essentially the first bit in the battle, what I hope to accomplish was just to get these men and their perspective into the historical record. Um, that's why mm-hmm. I approached the U S army's infantry, excuse me, infantry journal, because, mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's an official recognition. That's uh, a source that I think they would be proud to know they're finally getting some credit. And I just want their names to be mentioned and to be talked about whenever this discussion of Alvin York and the event of October 8th, 1918 comes up. Awesome. And so... um where will people be able to find this um, and and when the, the article, the other six? So it will be out in the Infantry Journal, which, like you said, is now the Infantry Magazine. And it's online. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be out in the winter edition. Uh, I know last time okay. I spoke with them, they were having um, some issues, so they were probably going to combine the fall and winter. But uh, I was told at least this winter, by December, you should have it in the Infantry Magazine. All right, cool. So we'll we'll post that link um, with with all of our uh, social media posting. So excellent. And so um, if if people want to learn more about this, should they should they just w- wait for the article or or are there other if if they're like- interested, um, Stephen Gerard and I have a, um, a Facebook page that we operate called the Other Sixteen. Uh, it's an open and public group, so anyone's welcome to come on. We. Obviously, I'm not posting a lot of the things until everything is published, but we post photos and documents and uh, different pieces, and I'm very open to discussion. Um, you know, it's uh, you working with Stephen, you know, it's great to have someone on a military side because he'll make sure everything's correct. Um, nothing mm-hmm. that comes onto that page is not backed up by some sort of research, some historical document. And so... Stephen and I have worked very closely to make sure that mm-hmm. this story and the page are as accurate and open to everyone as possible. Because I want anyone who is interested to please um, make a comment, shoot a message to the page, and we'll be happy to discuss it. 
Oh, awesome. Awesome. And, and that's, that's what this whole thing is about is to, again, like you said, like bring, bring these other, um, shed some light on these other 16 men, but also to, to further, um, further the discussion. Um, I've seen Steven at work, uh, on Facebook. He is very, very knowledgeable. Yes. So it's really, really cool. Um, awesome. And so future plans for the story, of course, like you have, you have the article coming out, which, which you, like you said earlier, it's probably going to be the, the now second yeah. chapter, um, which I, so being a huge book nerd, like I, I was excited at the first chapter, but I'm like, you're kidding. This is now the second yeah. chapter. I mean, there's another chapter. In yeah. So, so the, the plan is to get it published as the, the full um, story publishes a book. I've been working with a publisher, you know, trying to get everything nailed down. Like I said, it's been three years and it, this story doesn't just go from uh, 1918 to 1919. This story goes for 50 odd years from 1918 all the way into the 1960s and even um the book itself should end in 2008 when the descendants get together so this is a a story that just needs to be told so we're working on a book and hopefully you know if everything goes right it will be out sometime next year and then everyone can see and learn about these other men and put them into a perspective uh of mm-hmm. the larger context of October 8th, 1918 and the involvement with Alvin York. Ah, oh, well, that's excellent. Wow. Well, great. Well, I, um, I, I thoroughly look forward to it. Um, sign, sign me up for a copy right away. I will, uh, I'm, I'm in. Um, yeah, well, th- great. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking time out of your, uh, out of your Sunday evening to, uh, to come on and, and discuss the other 16 here. Well, thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to finally mention these uh, heroes, the, their names, just get their story out here. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is great. So this will be a great tie in for uh, some point. I will get to uh, Alvin York, my production rate is horrible, but um We'll, we'll get to that point. It's, we'll hit that story too. So, so this is this is just great. I, I I just love hearing the different angles. So once again, like thank you so so much, and um, uh, best of luck in in completing the book. And I look forward to uh, uh, its release next year, sir. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care. All right. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with James. Again, the article. The other 16 will be available soon in the U.S. Army's Infantry Magazine, which can be found online at www.benning.army.mil backslash infantry backslash magazine. Links will be provided in the episode notes. Okay, while I have you here, let me plug Lost Battalion Tours real quick. Don't end the episode here, please. Okay, if the stories you've been listening to here for the past year, the stories of the American Expeditionary Force in the Meurs Argonne, interest you and you would love to get out there and see the battlefields, here is your chance. Lost Battalion Tours is a collaboration between World War I author and historian Robert J. Laplander and myself. Our inaugural tour will be an eight-day trip to the Argonne region on August 8th through the 15th, 2020. Those of you who have traveled with Robert in the Argonne before know this is no sightseeing bus trip. This is down in the dirt where it happened stuff. Now you can join us for a trip you won't soon forget. If you feel like a trip like this is something that is out of your reach, please reconsider. For $1,200, US dollars per single guest, or $1,000 per guest in groups of two or more, this is very much within the realm of possibility. If you would like to discuss payment options in more detail with us, please don't hesitate to contact us directly at lostbattaliontours at gmail.com or via our personal emails. We don't include airfare in those prices because we feel that you can find great deals out there on your own. We can also help you with locating flights, though. You will be staying in the Argonne at a small French hotel as part of your Argonne immersion experience. 
you'll see all the important spots concerning the battle, including a first-hand tour of the whole story of the Lost Battalion with the number one Lost Battalion guy in the world. That's Rob. Each tour can be tailored to fit almost any special request visit by guests. And all of this for a one-time, all-inclusive price of just $1,200 per single guest or $1,000 per guest in groups of two or more. Again, this price does not include airfare. While you will walk among the endless crosses of the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery, you will also walk in the footsteps of the Doughboys. You will stand in the foxholes of the Lost Battalion inside the pocket near Charlevoix Mill, and you will walk through the trenches and vast mine craters of the Butte de Valcois. You will be on the ground in the fields and villages of the Meuse region, where hundreds of thousands of American men and women battled the enemy, the devastated countryside, and the environment in the last 47 days of the Great War. I've been to the Meuse-Argonne region twice now, and without a doubt, the history of the area gets me fired up with enthusiasm. My first time there, I don't think I slept for a week, because every night I sat in a French farmhouse where German soldiers had boarded behind the front line a century earlier. There is something about this region, with its hills, winding roads, small villages, and dark forests that will pull at you. Rob and I believe this will be the trip of a lifetime, something you will never forget. He can and will tell you some great stories, and I'll tell you some here. I've walked up the northern slope of Les Mortes Hommes with my stepson Lee. I've stood in the same spot in Exomont where U.S. cameramen captured the village under artillery fire, and I've had the best lunch of sandwiches and wine out in the middle of some field on the Somme with Lee and my brother Chuck. Things I'll never forget. That last one is a Somme story, but still unforgettable. These are experiences similar to what you can have out there with us. Every morning, we'll be out and exploring, seeing and feeling and being right where World War I history happened. We'll have lunch in the field or at Jean-Paul de Vries' excellent private museum in Romagna sous Montfaucon. Dinner in the evenings, we'll be back at the hotel where no doubt we can connect and share history for as long as you like. Space is limited to 14 guests, so don't wait. Contact myself, Mike, or Robert J. Laplander today for more details. More information is coming this week, so stay tuned. But if you've been thinking that you'd like to experience the AEF in France, this is your chance. With the holiday season upon us, this makes a pretty fabulous Christmas gift at a very affordable price that your significant other will treasure forever. Don't miss out. Contact us today at lostbattaliontours at gmail.com and join us. We are along the road, parallel 276.4, waiting for you. As always, thanks so much for listening. A new narrative episode will be out soon. Take care. <laughs>